from Luke 23. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. May the Lord add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. Three words. They crucified him. Serve as the seeming conclusion to a book that is full of hope and promise. After all the buildup, after the restoration of the sight to the blind, after the grace displayed to the prostitute, and after the forgiveness offered to the woman caught in adultery, after the friendship offered to Zacchaeus, after the greatest sermon that had ever been preached, that promised that the, king, the kingdom of God was at hand, with the hope of his disciples and followers, they crucified him. And this was the deflating collapse of all that hope. And yet it was exactly as he said it would be. He'd already told his disciples that he would have to suffer many things. And if you remember the story of the breaking of bread, the Passover dinner, as they're gathered around at the Last Supper, he tells, he tells the disciples that the Passover lamb must be sacrificed. He 
had predicted his own murder. He had told them about his death. And despite all of those things, even as they witnessed the fulfillment of the promises, they didn't understand what they were seeing. I mean, here was the Savior, the hope of the world, the Messiah, the one who'd come to set everything right. And here he was being killed on the heels of an unjust trial after the betrayal of one of his disciples and the abandonment of many of the others. He makes his way into the trial. He's found guilty of all sorts of crimes, according to the Jewish tribunal. The Romans as well wanted to see him die for the claims that he had made to be the God, a claim that inherently was treasonous to the crown because only Caesar was viewed to be God. A claim that was heresy to the Jews because certainly this mere man from a nowhere town called Galilee couldn't be the Messiah. And so they took him out into the public square, strapped him over a rock, stripped him naked, and beat him senseless kicking and spitting and punching, mocking cruelly this man who claimed to be God. They took a cat of nine tails, a a leather strap that had nine more leather straps attached to it, and in those straps were embedded pieces of stone and glass and little ball bearings of metal that were intended to pulverize the meat of the flesh, that were intended to grab onto the skin of the back and rip it clean from the person's body. The historical accounts are so intense that they even say that on certain occasions as people were receiving this beating that ribs could be pulled from the side of their flesh. So deep in was that cat of nine tails sunk. And upon beating him mercilessly as Jesus was stretched out over the stone, he looks over to see Peter, one of the beloved disciples denying him for the third time. They stand him up, naked and ashamed, and they put the crossbeam of the cross on his back. The pole of the cross was already sunk into the dirt at the top of the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull, just waiting for him to be crucified on it. And yet Jesus was so weak in this state, his body had been through so much abuse that he couldn't even carry the crossbeam himself. And so as he stumbled his way up the hill, finally the Romans called over this random passerby named Simon and asked him to carry the crossbeam for Jesus. And when they got to the, the top of that place, they would have spread the crossbar across the back of Jesus Christ. And they would have driven nails the size of railroad spikes into his hands. They would have lifted him up and dropped him into the the beam that was sunk into the dirt. They would have bent his, his feet upwards so that his knees were bent, and then they would have driven a nail right through the center of his feet. And all of that was to put the person who was on the cross in so much physical agony, so much pain, so much brutality, so much shame, that eventually they would die. 
But this wasn't death by blood loss. This was death by asphyxiation. Because in that position, with arms stretched out and overhead, and with feet underneath you, your lungs begin to ultimately not draw enough air in to support your body. And so, so the prisoner nailed to that cross would have to heave up against that nail in his feet, tearing flesh, just to draw in one more breath. And finally, when they were ready to murder the person that they had put on the cross, they would come over and take a club and break the shin bones so that the person could no longer support their own weight and would die. So brutal is this death that they invented a word to describe it. It's the word excruciating. The word excruciating, excrucis, literally means out of the cross. And as if that wasn't enough, as Jesus hung there naked and ashamed, Roman soldiers cast dice for his clothing. And a sign that turned out to be all too true, but nonetheless was put there to mock him, hung overhead, stating, here is the king of the Jews. But what's noteworthy about all of this is that as brutal as that human suffering was, it was not the primary emphasis or the primary pain that Jesus Christ experienced that day. Of all the descriptions of the physical suffering of Jesus that Luke or the other gospel authors could have rightly focused on, Luke boils everything down to this simple statement, they crucified him. Now why do that? With everything we know about the brutality that Jesus faced, why in the world sum all of that up with the phrase, they crucified him? And I would suggest to you that the reason is so that we would not miss the sacrifice behind the suffering. See, to give the description of Jesus Christ's death in whole, divorced from what was underlying all of that spiritually, might lead us to an emotional place. It might even lead us to an emotional decision. But what Christ came to do was something infinitely greater than draw your emotions. Isaiah 53, which we heard read earlier, said, this, said it this way, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And the truth is that as brutal as that physical suffering was for Jesus Christ, the spiritual suffering that he endured was even greater. I mean, here is Jesus who existed pre-eternally with the Father and with the Spirit in perfect loving communion, in perfect oneness, in perfect unbroken relationship. Here is Jesus who, out of his own love, came into the darkness of this world and lived his 33 years perfectly, tempted in every way, like as we are, and yet without sin. And not only tempted in every way like we are, but even tempted specifically by Satan himself, and yet without sin. Here is Jesus, the only person in the history of the world who didn't deserve to die, and who certainly didn't deserve to feel guilt. And yet 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... 
for your sake and for mine. God the Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin. See, we, we connect so well with the, with the physical and human suffering of Jesus Christ because on some level we can fathom it. On some level we can understand. We've experienced pain. But this sort of suffering is unlike anything we've ever experienced. I mean, what would it have possibly felt like for Jesus who had never sinned, who had never experienced the weight of guilt to in this moment experience the weight of the world's sin. All of the sin of all of God's people before that moment and all of the sin of all of God's people after that moment put onto one person who had never experienced guilt. See, it was painful to be betrayed and to be abandoned by his closest friends, and it was humiliating to be beaten and to be mocked by the same people that he came to help. It was excruciating in the truest sense of the word to be nailed to the cross. And while Jesus Christ hung on that cross for three hours in utter darkness, he did it all willingly. As Isaiah 53 said, like a lamb to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth to object. He went through all of that willingly. But the words that we sang earlier gave us, give us an insight into the greatest pain that Jesus experienced. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave See, for all that physical suffering, Jesus never protested or fought. He experienced all of it and he endured all of it silently. But as our sin was put onto the body of Jesus Christ and as the Father turned his face away from his Son, you hear the ultimate cry of despair from the Lamb. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God laid our sins on Christ and punished them in Him. And Jesus, who had never experienced guilt, having never sinned, experienced guilt on a cosmic level. And in that moment, Jesus Christ experienced hell for you. Hell, by its very essence, at its very core, is the absence of the presence of God. And by God's grace, none of us have felt that. But in that moment, as God the Father turned his back on his own beloved Son, Jesus Christ experienced hell. Separation from his loving Father. And he did it for you. He experienced the rejection of his own father so that you would never have to.
Peter says in his letter, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is what Luther called the great exchange. That for the Christian, in the moment when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he took all of your sin, all of your past sin, all of your present sin, all of your future sin, every sin you've ever committed and every sin you have yet to commit was laid onto the body of Jesus Christ. And in that very same moment, Jesus Christ's love was poured out for you that all of his righteousness, that his perfect life, his perfect observance of the law, his perfect love for the Father, his perfect perfection was applied to you. So that when Jesus Christ in that moment cried out to die, it is finished. He was making a declaration that there was nothing left to be done. Nothing for you to do, nothing for you to offer, nothing for you to pay, nothing you could give God in exchange for his love or his mercy or his grace, nothing you could offer to pay him back for what he had done, that everything was finished, that Jesus Christ experienced hell so that you would never have to, that Jesus Christ experienced the absence of the Father's love so that you would never have to, so that when the Father sees you, he no longer sees you with your mistakes and your sins and your failures and your brokenness and your heartache and all of the things that define you in your broken humanity, but instead he sees you as his child. He sees perfection. But in the words of one pastor, God does not love some future perfect version of you. But because of Jesus Christ, he loves you perfectly where you are now. See, the cross is not just a symbol of human brutality. It's also the symbol of God's consuming, chasing, pursuing, radical love. It's the perfect place for us to see ourselves for who we are. For the believer to see yourself for who you were prior to Christ. For those that don't know Jesus, the perfect place to see what Jesus Christ experienced for you. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross may view its nature rightly, hear its guilt, may estimate. This is the juxtaposition that I want us to have on our minds until Sunday morning. The brutality of man towards God and the love of God that led Christ as he struggled to breathe to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so when we come in on Easter morning, 
we're going to pick up again in this darkness. In this solemnity. So that we can appreciate with clarity the final word that God is going to offer.